this podcast series on resistance, radicalisation and religion, where we'll be looking at division and extremism in different parts of the world and through history. We'll ask questions like, what does it feel like to be on the losing side? Do people ever change their minds? And what role does belief, religious or otherwise, play in motivating and enabling people to rebel or resist? Is religion exploited? Can radicalisation be reversed? I'm Suzanne Rain, and I'm joined today by Raffaello Pantucci, who is an expert on Islamist terrorist groups and the growth of far-right terrorism. Raf is author of We Love Death As You Love Life, Britain's Suburban Terrorists, which told the story of the UK's jihadist community before the war in Syria. He's a senior fellow in the International Centre for Political Violence and Terrorism Research at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore, and a senior associate fellow at RUSI in London. Raf, welcome. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm going to start with a question um, which sets the scene, uh, the background for us. You're an expert in terrorism, and for the last 20 years, that focus has been predominantly on Islamist terrorism. Um, But however, we've seen, particularly in the last five years, a corresponding growth in um, right-wing extremism and terrorism. Obviously, right-wing extremism is nothing new but it feels like something more alarming is happening now. Could I start off by asking you to describe how you see this development in the broader context? Thank you. It's a really uh, interesting question because I think it does raise the kind of key issue of uh, the current moment when we're looking at terrorist threats. Um, You're entirely right that sort of until now, uh, for the past 20 years almost, the sort of threat picture has been dominated by the violent Islamist threat. But the right-wing threat, and in particular the extreme right-wing threat, never really went away. And I think what's worrying about the right-wing threat, well, the extreme right-wing threat that we've seen articulate itself recently, is how cleanly this particular expression of the threat seems to have meshed with uh, kind of modernity. And by that I mean that if we look at the kind of extreme right-wing threat that's uh, showing up at the moment, and you know it's articulated quite perfectly in some ways in the media at the moment in the UK, where we see the case of a very young boy of, I think, 15 or 16 years old, who's just been convicted um, and found guilty on terrorism charges, who had been involved in extreme right-wing networks online since he'd been 13. And this sort of push uh, downwards in terms of the age, and this push online, and this push to really quite extreme narratives of hate against other communities, and increasing interconnectedness around the world, is really articulating what is the new extreme right wing. Whereas previously the right wing was very much kind of seen as, you know, these kind of uh, thuggish chaps who would go to football matches, you know, go to pubs and afterwards, you know, go beat up a sort of black person. Nowadays, instead, we're seeing that the extreme right wing is made up still of people like that. And we still see some groups like that, but we increasingly see a growing number of very young uh, children, really, being drawn towards these groups and being drawn towards these groups online. The final aspect, which I think makes the particular new expression of the kind of extreme right so disturbing, is in some ways how it kind of doesn't seem to be the same kind of clear cut, uh, you know, neo-Nazi, anti-immigrant expression that we saw before. But it seems instead to be this kind of odd hodgepodge of ideas that kind of pulls in from, you know, the classic far right imagery usually associated with Hitler and the sort of Nazis in Germany. 
but now increasingly actually pulls ISIS imagery and ISIS ideology alongside you know other sorts of expressions of violence. So it becomes a kind of nihilism which uses a kind of neo-Nazi white supremacist vision as its kind of driving force, but actually is an incredibly sort of weird mix of ideas. And so I think this is what's sort of so worrying about the extreme right that we see now, which is that it's so diffuse. It's appealing to such a young audience and it's so globally connected. And that is so different to the extreme right that we used to see, uh, you know, previous, uh, previously. Um, you know, the, the sort of best uh, example to look at in some ways is the case of David Copeland, who in the UK in 1999 was doing a kind of one man bombing campaign against London's minorities. Um, you know, he was a man who's on the fringes of, you know, the known right wing groups, but decided to go do his attack by himself. Um, he's a bit of a loner, quite a strange individual, um, but ultimately, you know, decided to go conduct these acts very much by himself. And now instead, we're seeing this very young community of people being drawn towards these same sorts of ideas. Ralph, so that's fascinating. I'm going to ask you in a moment to to explain to us in more detail, um, particularly the sort of US uh, right wing terrorist or or extremist developments, so that so that we understand it better. But I want to first of all sort of dig into what you were talking about this sort of um, the way that it appears that the right wing has adopted the um the sort of radicalizing techniques and indeed some of the imagery of uh, of the islamist groups and particularly daesh but of course daesh didn't come out of nowhere and 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 you could argue i think that the the islamist terrorist groups really pioneered this um kind of online radicalization so i'd be really interested if you could talk a bit more about um similarities in the tactics that the, the right wing and the Islamist terrorists are now using to, to radicalize and, and recruit, and particularly sort of the question about the narrative. So in, in Islamism, they talk of the single narrative, which is a really sort of clear, persuasive argument that, that they use to, to, to draw people into their cause. What's your view on that? I think that's it's really interesting to see the kind of merger of these different identities. Because I think the issue is in some ways that nowadays so much of the radicalization happens through the same medium, which is basically the, the online world, um, that in many ways, the way that you sort of attract people to your ideas will kind of be the same if you're thinking in the online world, um, no matter what the kind of ideology is. Um, and in some ways, you know, the dominant ideology at any one moment, which is the one that's attracting the most people and attracting the most attention, will in itself lend itself very easily to a kind of emulation. So if, you know, we see ISIS is drawing lots of attention to itself through its kind of ultraviolence, through its expression of, you know, this extreme narrative of hatred against everybody else and creating this sort of caliphate, you know, to fight against all other uh, communities, you know, people can see that this is the kind of attractive message which is pulling people in. Well, other groups will kind of ape that as well. And I think that's what you've seen um, in terms of how other groups have tried to copy ISIS' success to try to draw uh, people towards their causes. I think the whole single narrative um, idea was one that uh, in some ways I might suggest kind of universal uh, to terrorist ideologies and the perspective that, you know, terrorist ideologies ultimately are giving people an explanation for how the world works and how the world should work and gives them a cause that they can associate themselves with to give, you know, greater meaning to what otherwise might be a fairly, you know, humdrum mundane life. And so in a way, the kind of simplicity of that message is what's so appealing. 
you know, if you often, as, as you well know, you know, if you look at the lots of individuals who are drawn towards sort of terrorist ideologies and terrorist groups, a lot of these people are kind of people who are searching for some sort of meaning in their life. And in searching for that meaning, they're looking for a kind of simple explanation. And that simple explanation is provided by the single narrative that Islamists will advance. Or in the case of the extreme right wing, this kind of simple narrative that says, you know, all of the problems you're encountering aren't really your fault. They're part of the fact that the society you live in is not dealing uh, with the problems it should, you know, it's facing in the correct way. And you need to fight back against them. And here's a simple reason, a simple explanation and simple way forwards to try to play a role in fighting back. So that kind of single narrative is something that is, I would argue, replicable across ideologies. And it's something that when you move so much of the ideology and the identity online, is even easier to replicate in that same sort of way. But what's extraordinary, I think, about this way of uh, the extreme right wing in particular aping ISIS is that fundamentally, in many ways, you know, the kind of the extreme right wing that we see today is in some ways a reaction to the growth in violent Islamist uh, movements and ideology that we've seen and a kind of reaction to uh, this movement. And so the fact that they're kind of not only reacting to this movement, but also aping it to ultimately make themselves stronger is, I think, a really uh, fascinating twist and turn of events. Yes, it is indeed. And and there's a question for me, essentially, about whether whether the message, actually both in the case of Daesh and in the case of the extreme right-wing groups, is a positive message or a negative one. So um, does it... Is, is there something about because I when they when the caliphate was announced, the appeal um, to people to come and join was essentially one of one of hope, one of creating a, a better place, which which I think particularly young people felt they could very much in, invest in. So so let's look at the sort of positive part of that message. And um, I'm thinking in the context of the sort of real division in the US at the moment. Do you think in the case of the, the, the right-wing extreme movements that, that they think that they're posing a threat to stability and democracy or do you think that they're saving it? To what extent do, do they have a positive message? And then we'll come on in a minute to discuss the sort of negative sides of that. I mean, that's, it's a really interesting question because I think the key part is that, you know, for a group to be attractive, it has to have some sort of something attractive about it, right? <laughs> and something that's relentlessly uh, negative um, is not going to have the same kind of appeal in some ways. I mean, it will always to a certain core community, but, you know, in general, for an idea to sort of resonate, it has to be something that is attractive. And in being attractive, it has to kind of build towards something else. And I think that is one of the interesting identities of the kind of modern right wing in a way, or the extreme right, in that essentially it's saying that there is a kind of a, a utopian, there is a vision of a world uh, which is protected uh, from these other people and we need to build towards that. And we need to wake everyone else up to the need to build towards that. And that I think ultimately is the vision that they're trying to sort of express. Um, and I think when we're talking about you know, the extreme right in the UK, for example, I think you're talking a lot about very young people who are finding themselves in very deprived situations and are often finding that the easy person to blame for that deprived situation is the foreigner or the foreigners presented to them as an easy explanation as to why this situation could be there and what they can do about it 
to try to rebuild the kind of better society that they would edge towards. And this, in some ways, because that, that kind of messaging is one that resonates with a lot of mainstream political debate in some ways. Um, and this is, I think, what makes the new and current kind of extreme right wing in the West in particular so complicated, is that that kind of messaging, which says that, you know, there is a better world that we could achieve and that we can build and that you need to help defend, um, but we need to get rid of these foreigners to do that. That is a message that sits very cleanly, unfortunately, adjacent to the kind of Brexit message that we had in the UK. Um, which is something that very clearly appealed to a very substantial part of the British community. And I think this is the kind of complexity of um, of the extreme right, as it's currently expressed, is that some of the messaging that it's uh, uh, putting out there and some of the ideas and some of the sentiments that it's touching within people are sentiments that are not that far apart from what are fairly mainstream political discourses now. And this creates this incredible tension, I think, from a government perspective on how you react to this. Because how is it that you can sort of be pushing back on something which doesn't, you know, on, a, on an idea and a vision, which ultimately is one that you were trying to appeal to, too, in a kind of positive perspective uh, to win votes at the ballot box. So I think it's that incredible, it's that really complicated view, which ultimately you're entirely right. It's a positive view of the world in the sense that, you know, you're trying to build a better society and trying to protect the society that you have and you're trying to push out the elements which are making it bad. But these extreme right wing people are saying that the, to do it in a really violent way. And yet others are saying to do it in a sort of democratic way. But actually, the narratives that they're pushing are not that far apart from each other. And I think that's what makes this new extreme right wing in particular so difficult and challenging um, uh, to manage. So that leads us very neatly, Raf, to... Um... A discussion in a little bit more depth it'd be really helpful actually if you could um talk through some of the different groups about american politics because as you said 74 million people voted for for donald trump and and yet he has now become associated with um uh, these right-wing extremist movements of which i know there are there are multiple different kinds but that question now is about, um, it was a positive message. It suddenly flipped into a very negative message in the sense that Trump has lost. And one of the things that I think we did want to, to, to look into a bit more is that question about winning and losing. So what does it feel like when you lose? And what effect does that have either as a sort of mobilising force on your, on your radical movement or, or, or the opposite? Could you start by talking us through the kind of right wing landscape on on that issue sure the the right wing the extreme right or the right wing in general actually in the u.s is a extraordinarily broad space uh increasingly and i think it's something which again much like in europe is something that we've dealt with a very long time but i think in the u.s it's gone mainstream in some ways in a way that we discuss a lot in europe but i don't think it quite ever went that far um, in the sense that, I mean, within Europe, there was always that concern of how far apart some of the kind of extreme right wing groups were with, you know, some fairly mainstream political parties um, like UKIP in the UK or like Front National in France or like AFD in Germany. But you never quite saw that overspill into violence that I think we did see in the US where you had a kind of, you know, what what is one of the two main ruling parties, the Republican Party, essentially finding itself co-opting or being co-opted by parts of what were previously seen as a kind of extreme right that was, you know, actively prosecuted by, by the security forces. And the extreme right in the States or the far right in the States is an incredibly broad spectrum of 
everything from kind of classic racists who are kind of descendants of the Ku Klux Klan, who I'm sure everyone has heard of and knows of, through to, you know, survivalists, the kind of long-standing sense of libertarianism in the US where you have these people who reject the kind of, you know, they appeal to American frontier spirit and they reject this idea of a federal government and they want to live independent. And some of them group together as militias that fight against the federal government. Other than others describe themselves as sovereign citizens where they kind of refuse to pay taxes, refuse to get car licenses, refuse to do anything to do with the government, kind of live on their farms by themselves, um, all the way through to sort of militias that have a kind of very strong Christian identity that sort of build themselves around a Christian iconography and say, you know, well, we're fighting and building a society on behalf of the Lord and reject the federal state. And we're very closely aligned with sort of elements on the uh, on the kind of uh, Christian right in the states. But then it kind of has gone even further than that now, where you've got these kind of militia movements that have gone, in some cases, very uh, xenophobic. Um, and so you get this sort of merger between some of these militia movements that are kind of libertarians alongside some of these uh, xenophobes and the, their identities kind of merge together. But the reason I kind of separate them out is that actually, if you look at some of these militia movements, and I think Boogaloo is an interesting expression of this, where you can see that there are some people within that group who are clearly racists and they're quite clearly happy to advocate you know, the same racist messages that the Ku Klux Klan would, others actually will welcome people of color and say, actually, no, we're here basically to build a free society. We're here to rebel against the federal government. We're not here to persecute minorities. And then you get some of these people who want to set themselves up along the border with Mexico and sort of keep out the Mexican community or the Latin American community who ultimately provide a huge labor force in the U.S., so this is kind of the, this wide community that you have. And then this has been kind of supplemented in some ways by the online world, where not only has it provided a place where all of these different groups can kind of come in contact with each other, merge, find new people, and create a really confusing uh, space there, and enjoy all the kind of messaging that came out from President Trump's various social media feeds. But you also have this QAnon phenomenon, which is this you know, bizarre creation of the internet in a way, where you have a kind of an identity or an idea that developed in online platforms where an individual and nameless anonymous individual started posting online, you know, suggesting they had some deeper insight into government and had some deeper insight into the fact that government was being, you know, ruled by this bizarre cabal of beings who were involved in some sort of pedophilic satanistic cult. Um, and this kind of group was something that you know, President Trump was at the forefront of fighting. And QAnon becomes this kind of identity online where people will sort of associate with this uh, identity and pick up on the memes and ideas that, you know, people associated with this identity propagate online. And it becomes kind of an online movement. So it becomes like a kind of a, an online discussion with no clear leader, <laughs> no clear genesis aside from some anonymous person who is posting stuff online becomes a kind of a driving force in some ways of this kind of online right-wing community. And we can see that this Q identity shows up in a lot of those other groups I was talking about before and kind of co-ops them. And we can see when you see protests of these people gathering in the United States, um, you see them using uh, you know, iconography to show that they are also associated with Q. And actually, you can even see that there's members of Congress now in the US who are members, who are people who've advocated Q ideas. So you kind of get this extraordinary mix of identities that kind of merges together in the U.S. to make up this sort of extraordinarily complex right wing. And from that perspective, I think, and this maybe goes to your question about winning and losing, 
the fascinating thing is that these people all clearly just lost an election. <laughs> and I think one of the things we saw in reaction to the loss of that election was the protest and what has been described as the insurrection on Capitol Hill, uh, where we saw lots of these people actually, you know, take up arms of a sort, protest to the point of violence and taking over Capitol Hill. And so I think that was one expression of their losing, which was clearly uh, negative and gave them a sense of losing uh, their sense of, you know, being in power and having a president who was talking to them, uh, you know, surreptitiously or, or obviously and was kind of helping support their cause and bolster them to now being in a situation of losing. And I think the losing part is a really interesting part to focus on. And I'm, I'm fascinated that you focus so much on it. But the question for me about the losing part is if I look at every other kind of terrorist ideology and if I focus, for example, on the Islamist side, the fascinating thing, thing to me about the Islamist side is how much no matter how much the ideology appears to be losing, they're always able to pivot their narrative in a way that says, well, we're only losing because of this, and therefore we are actually still winning. <laughs> and it's always extraordinary that ability that they have to sort of contort their message in a way that ultimately makes it appear to their followers that they are still fighting for a winning cause. Because I think that's the kind of biggest problem these groups face is that you know if you're ultimately projecting a cause that is clearly a loser's cause, you're going to struggle to recruit people because people will say, well, you know, I'm going to go join another ideology or I'll go find something else to drive my life's meaning forwards because you guys are clearly not going to give me the kind of sense of you know fulfillment that I get from joining a winning cause. That plays exactly into something that, that I am truly fascinated with, which is something we've struggled with for a long time on the case in the case of Islamist terrorism is is precisely that is how the narrative continues to adapt every time it appears that they've suffered a major setback of some kind. And of course, in Islam, um, the narrative is is closely linked to this question of the fulfilment of the prophecies, and there is a set of steps that mankind must go through before we reach the end of our journey. And one of the things there was the death of the caliph is not a setback, but a step forward, because the, we still have a number of caliphs to go through before the end of days. And we saw it again in in Syria, where Daesh were were focused on the town of Darbek because it had a, a sort of great significance in apocalyptic sort of narrative, and then when they lost Darbek, it didn't matter actually because they had another narrative to to supplant it with. So this is kind of sort of slightly pessimistic message that we're coming up with here, which is essentially it's not enough to to appear to win. Um, because the opposing side or, or the resistance or rebellion or whatever it is will take in its own way energy from defeat. I think that's that's what you're saying. And I think in the case of Islamist extremist groups, that does appear to, to keep happening. So so kind of the question then is is what can be done about reconciliation? Um in the in Islamist radicalization, we, we've been using for a long time the terms disengagement or de-radicalization. Um, are there any lessons from that that we could apply to the current divisions in, in, in Western societies or not? I mean, I think it's, it's really difficult because I think that from the extreme right perspective, you know, this narrative of uh, loss is, you know, one that undoubtedly will sort of pivot in a new direction. They will just sort of rebuild and Say well, you know this this struggle is is a longer struggle. We're ultimately struggling against the state. We need to continue to fight, and we have got supporters still there. And so this sort of war can go on. Um, and so I think I'm sure that they will find a way of continuing on in those sorts of narratives. And I think 
the question about you know healing the divisions in societies are very very challenging i mean i think that if we look at it at a kind of micro level and we think about it in terms of kind of de-radicalization and uh, disengagement that we talk about on the islamist side i would argue that there's probably a lot to be said about the similarities between those particular programs and the same sorts of programs that one might deploy with the extreme right in the sense that ultimately my interpret my sense of a lot of these programs is that they're very kind of micro level they're about understanding the individual his psychology or her psychology and figuring out what it was that pushed them in that direction and how it is we can steer them in a different one and i think we think about things that are that kind of micro level i think it's possible to you know continue you know to deliver a similar sort of program of activity for the right as well as you could for the ismist side of the equation i think the bigger societal divisions are much more complicated because as i as i kind of mentioned earlier the idea that they kind of tap something that actually is quite mainstream in some ways and so that tapping into the mainstream makes it much harder i think for us to try to tackle you know what you could describe as the root causes right i mean but i would argue that actually it's the same on the islamist side of the coin i mean if i think back to some of the root causes of why you know islamist terrorism emerged it's you know fundamentally about divisions in countries that go back many many decades many many years that probably haven't really been healed actually <laughs> that we're still kind of dealing with and we're still struggling with and so it's really a question of how do we kind of manage it and how do we you know manage that side of the problem in the sense that we know that these divisions are there and we know that we need to try to find ways of healing them but we know that's going to be a very long path and how do you deal with the violent expression that pops up along the way i think the complicating factor we have now and i think in the us in particular this is a huge complicating factor is that that extreme community is so close to the mainstream it will be very difficult for the current ruling party in the states to be able to deal with that in any way that doesn't look like persecution of its political adversaries um and i think that is where frankly president biden's administration you'll find it really really difficult to try to heal that rift i think in europe we're fortunate in in most european countries those parties that would express would represent that same expression have still managed you know still managed to sit off the mainstream i mean they're close to it and they've managed to get very close to power in some countries but ultimately they are still seen as a kind of a thing to the side and you do still have a kind of political mainstream that wants to kind of work together and heal these divisions and in the us i think the difficulty is that the mainstream becomes so enmeshed under president trump with the extreme it's going to be very difficult for the current administration to try to deal with healing those divisions um going forward so rafa final question and it was something we talked about recently the the picture you paint is one that i very much recognize um from the question of islamist terrorism and there being essentially no large scale um successful example where the narrative has been countered the the divisions have been reduced so this brings us to a question about coexistence or accommodation how can we you're not going to be able to answer this in one minute but but what are the means by which we might seek to coexist or accommodate in such a way that we start to heal the divisions and i think you you've addressed that to some extent but maybe you're just going to say we have to find a way to coexist which is below violence what are your views on that 
I mean, I think part of it does have to rest in uh, somehow bringing down the um, anger that exists within the kind of public discourse, because I think that that doesn't help in the sense of, you know, I think a lot of the problems and in individuals you see who ultimately go off, go forwards to, you know, commit terrorist acts or join terrorist groups or try to commit terrorist acts are people who are ultimately being drawn by the noise that they see in the public conversation and the aggression and the violence that, you know, appears within the mainstream public discourse. You know, people no longer talk of, you know, political opponents as people who, you know, you have a mild disagreement with. They're people who are, you know, evil and are out to destroy your world. And so if you're painting it in a public discourse in this kind of binary, aggressive fashion, you know, I, I think we shouldn't be surprised that some people ultimately, you know, take that at face value and say, yes, you know, these left wingers aren't just left wingers. They are evil people who are trying to destroy my world. And so I must do something about that. So I think toning down the public discourse, you know, would really help. And I think that is something that a lot of mainstream politicians should really think about when they think about some of the language that they use and they think about some of the narratives that they deploy. Um, if I think back to the UK, again, our Brexit conversation, you know, some of the narratives that were deployed, they were pretty horrendous and were pretty adversarial and pretty racist, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, that, are we surprised that we saw a spike in racist, you know, hate crime during that period? You know, frankly, one clearly trails the other. So I think toning that down would help an awful lot. Um, and I think in doing that, you would help maybe bring some of the heat down and then you'd actually be able to think about, well, how do we engage with some of these issues in a way that shows people who disagree fundamentally with uh, what we're trying to do when we're talking about, you know, immigration or we're talking about, you know, integration of minority communities um, in a way that it helps them get a sense that they do have a say in that story and they do have a say in that narrative that, you know, will mean that they don't feel that they have to go out and resort to violence to deal with these problems. So I think that would go a very long way in terms of calming things down a little bit. I also think, frankly, the fact that we all, you know, I, I hate to point the blame a finger on, you know, companies and social media companies in particular, um, you know, but I do think that the way that we all get our information these days from platforms where essentially they're built on algorithms that will basically give us more of what we are looking for rather than challenging ideas is, you know, part of the problem in some ways. So, you know, if you are minded in a direction to think about, you know, um, not liking immigrants, if you start looking online and start reading articles like that, the algorithm of that platform will give you more articles to support that view. And so you won't necessarily be challenged and think, well, actually, are there positive sides to immigration? Um, or are there posi positive sides to the vision that I'm trying to sort of explore further? So I think those are two practical things I would argue that might help bring things down a little bit. Um, and then beyond that, I think, you know, fundamentally, it's it's really about figuring out how we are going to, as, as you put it, Susan, you know, how do we live in, you know, in, in a society where we do have contrasting views and do have contrasting opinions and resort to letting people express those views in ways that don't mean that they have to resort to violence because they just don't think that they're being heard. And that is always going to be challenging. But I, I fear that, you know, and here I'd be really interested to hear your view, Suzanne, is my, my sense is that there has always kind of been in society an angry community who feel that they aren't being heard and need to use violence to express that. And that is, depending on which, you know, looking in many different ideological directions. And it feels like a kind of a human instinct in some ways. And so I think how do we 
ensure that that extreme expression of human behavior doesn't dominate our societies, I would argue, is probably the way that we should be seeking to kind of govern. Thank you, Raf. And um, that actually brings us to the end of our time. But I think you clearly, you leave us with a huge unanswered question, which I think actually is is particularly difficult to answer in, in the case of the instability in the Islamic world, particularly in the Middle East and and Asia, where we where where I think we've made very little progress in addressing the grievances such that it isn't such a recruiter and radicalizer for people to join these terrorist groups. So so there's still, I think, a lot more for us to, to think about and talk about, but um, that's all we've got time for today. I'm very grateful. It's been super having you with us, Ralph. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Suzanne. It was great to, it was great to chat. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at @camgeopolitics, and all our events are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.